0: when we actually embody a feeling that is shaping the entire environment. And most of the time we are either knowingly or unconsciously embodying a feeling that is riddled by shame and a sense of inadequacy. And this creates a lot of internal stress and a lot of internal pressure. And we feel it from one another. We never talk about it, but it has a huge impact on whether or not those in our environment feel safe. They don't really do what we say. They respond to how it feels. And when I became aware of that, it really shifted my ability to cultivate more meaningful relationships.
1: Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now I want you to imagine something. I want, you to, I want you to imagine that you're walking into a strange building. Inside this building, someone is waiting for you, someone you have, you have never met before. You don't know if they're going to be aggressive, dominant, nervous, playful, or downright terrified based on unknown experiences from their past. What you do know is that their first move will be 100% dependent on your leadership abilities. Sound familiar? Most people who have ever taken on or taken over a leadership role will recognize that situation in one way, shape, or form. However, here's the trick. In this particular situation, the one I asked you to imagine, you can't use words. You can't rely on persuasion or a job title. Charm and charisma will not work, and raising the volume of your voice will more than likely have the opposite effect. Oh, and did I mention that the person you're meeting weighs approximately 1,000 pounds and if you panic or there's a misunderstanding or you get something wrong, they are more than capable of seriously injuring you in a split second. Welcome to the world of Coel Simpson, the world of one of the most highly regarded horse whisperers on the planet. Now I've I've wanted Coel on the show since the very beginnings of this podcast. I can remember sitting literally with the original producer, the amazing Lauren Kelly, sitting in a cafe scribbling down our ideal guest lists and Coel was top top of that list for me. I'll get to her I'll get to her credentials in a minute and they, they are extensive. But first I wanted to explain to you why her particular take on influence has had such an impact on me. If you've if you've ever been in a leadership position, be it professionally or personally, within your families and networks, you'll know these moments. You'll know those moments where it feels like you're trying to lead or influence a herd of wild horses, like a herd of wild animals, where you're, you're faced with a group of very different personalities, all with different agendas, some who would jump into your role given half a chance, all that feel like they would be ready to bolt at the merest sign of a threat. Now, this, that feeling might be, might be constant, might be all the time, or it might be very specific. If you've ever tried to lead through a significant period of crisis or fear, or you are doing that right now, as I know many of you are, it will be one of those periods that is forever burned into your mind as feeling like you're trying to corral a wild herd. Now, I want you to extend that thought, take that thought one step further and consider the wild horses of your own mind. Your ability to to tame them, your ability to identify and harness them, Your ability to to witness and acknowledge how they impact how you show up. The sense of authority we either do or do not feel behind your words. Your ability to calm us with your presence as a leader and yet still instill trust that you can lead the charge when it counts. Now, and I'll say it again, do all of that without relying on words. That's real authority. Real authority inside and out so who is Coyle simpson she is after that kind of a build-up she is a world-renowned coach horse whisperer and the leader of the equus coaching movement her work has been featured in o magazine bbc business report the national journal the own network she's a tedx speaker as well as appearing in many other stages all around the world Since 2006, the Coel Institute has worked with individuals and countless Fortune 500 organizations across the planet, creating transformational leadership experiences by using horses and an experience with a horse to decode the silent language of authority through the lens of her experiences as a horse whisperer. This work has now evolved into an incredible community of coaches all over the planet. So if you want to dive into this further, I urge you check out what facilities might be available near you. I have I've done it. I've I've gone and personally experienced the work and I cannot recommend it highly enough if you're looking for something something new, something that will teach you skills and the immediate ability to be able to access something that I think no other form of coaching can teach you. In this conversation, in this conversation we jump into What's really going on when you feel like you're doing and saying all of the right things as a leader, but nothing is working? We all know how that feels. Why real authority is usually a silent language and what you need to let go of in order to become fluent. Why 1,000 pounds of instant feedback from a giant animal is the fastest way to test your ability to communicate and defend. That's an important word, defend your boundaries as a leader. How to lead a frightened herd and what to do in that electric moment where you start to feel fear taking over your team. The interplay between trust, force and control and why relinquishing control is the surest way to get it back. The shape of leadership energy. And yes, apparently it does have a shape and why it needs to be clear, calm and acutely attuned to your environment. And finally, how to manage your internal state as a leader. In particular, when the wild horses of your own mind, your fears, mental chatter, stories, lead you to literally get thrown out of the saddle. There's there's this amazing quote by Maya Angelou, who is a particular hero of mine. And she says, people will forget what you say. They will forget what you do, but they will never forget how you make them feel and in my experiences as a leader the good the bad and the bits I've messed up so badly I'd quite frankly rather forget that's never any truer than when it comes to experiencing attempting and trying to master leadership whether you're trying to lead a fortune 500 company a large team through unprecedented waters A small startup in the beginnings where every true believer counts, or a family where, as I am finding out at the moment, when it comes to trying to influence a two year old, your boundaries and authority are tested at every turn. So, can you tell I'm passionate about this one just by any chance? Grab whatever caffeinated beverage you're into at the moment, or just plug in, hit the road, pound the pavements, just do it safely, and enjoy the conversation we were finally able to make happen with the incredible Coel Simpson. Welcome to the podcast Coel Simpson.
0: Thank you. It's really nice to be here.
1: I'm gonna I wanna oh going to kick this podcast off the way that anyone that listens knows that I kick off pretty much every podcast and that's to ask you if you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert and to give you a, a wee bit of context on that question it's and it's fascinating in your world actually that a lot of people consider that in order to be influential in order to make an impact in order to be seen or heard you have to be an extrovert and actually i just had a conversation with somebody yesterday about the fact that they didn't feel that they could stand up and own their voice because they were introverted so Mm. hence why I ask all the incredibly influential people I I have the privilege of speaking to on this platform so introvert extrovert somewhere in between
0: I think I'd be very inclined to assess myself as being an introvert uh um I tend to be someone who really seeks out a lot of alone time, a lot of quiet time, a lot of space for reflection. Um, and, but by the same token, I find that as I surrender myself to this journey of really learning from nature and learning from animals, I recognize that um, I never actually quite know who I am or who I'm going to be in a moment. You know, if I really allow myself to let go of um, uh, an identity that I had, uh, you know, an hour ago about what makes me important or valuable or what I, you know, um, think I should be seeking out versus really being completely in touch with a feeling and a desire and an internal wisdom at a given moment. And I found that the more that I lean into that... um, the more I actually, really, uh, I often say when I'm teaching students, it's like, it's as if we have a couple of, as if our 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 internal state is a, is a piano, and we have all of these beautiful, beautiful musical notes that we can play, um, but culturally we get taught that there are two, maybe three notes. And those are the notes we should be playing, and those are the ones that make us important, and those are the ones that'll make us successful. And so that's actually who we are. Those three notes. And the more I spend time in wild landscapes with animals, and spend time with horses, I I really recognize. Oh my goodness, we're so uh, there's so much more depth and breadth and beautiful expression um, that's inside these these wonderful beings we were inhabiting uh and so I I tend not to try to give myself those kinds of labels but if you really put me on the spot and asked me I'd say the way we tend to explain it or measure it I would say I'm definitely more of an injury does it feel like does it
1: feel like instinct to, to you you know you were saying that in any given moment something different can be pulled pulled out of you or pulled through you or does it is the sensation of that instinct? I just had a moment of thinking, okay, if you're really present to that as a leader, if you're really present to that as a as a parent. Is it an instinct kicking in that, that enables you to play those different notes that don't always feel natural? Is it an internal voice? What does that feel like if you were present to it?
0: Yeah, in my, in my experience, my exploring within my own journey and really watching and listening closely to um, many, many clients around the world, uh, I've come to see that it has more to do with a sense of safety and a sense of well-being than, than probably anything else combined. Um, most of us human beings live in a, a human culture that has been very influenced by, um, this idea of perfectionism, um, you know, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to look like, that we're never supposed to age, that we should be a certain color, that our romance life should look, you know, a certain way according to our age. Um, there are a lot of spoken and unspoken rules that make up not just the different, uh, cultures that we see in beautifully you know, rich pockets of the world and uh, different countries, but uh, the human culture at large. And you're hard-pressed to find um, individuals who haven't been significantly influenced by this feeling, uh, this sort of underlying message that in one way or another, they're not enough. You know, it's not okay to just be completely yourself. And you don't see that in the animal world. So you're never going to see a horse going, oh my gosh, I'm too old. You know, I can't do, I can't, I can't go over and enjoy this or play with this because I'm just, you know, that just wouldn't be appropriate. Like you would never, you would never see uh, an animal um, not follow its natural desire, its curiosity, its playfulness, you know, the biological desires to rest, You they're, they're not um, dealing with this added layer of a sense of shame and a sense of inadequacy that there's something wrong with me or there's something more I should be doing in order to be deserving of love, connection, and attention. And um, so I, you know... I find that as we start to cultivate a different kind of relationship towards ourselves, that has a ripple effect in creating a different relationship with one another. And in turn, over time, we start to create an environment or a new type of culture that is centered around connection and belonging, rather than centered around um, an ideal uh, version of perfectionism so talk to
1: me
0: talk to me about where this all,
1: all this started for you you know this fascination between the interplay of humans and horses and the parallels between humans and horses and where did it begin and why is it so powerful as a learning tool for, for leadership for self-control for self-awareness
0: for me it was a journey that began very early um when I was about nine years old, I was able to um, be in an environment where I was around horses. Uh, my mother was engaged to a, uh, a gentleman who owned a very large sod farm, and the horses were kept out on these big, beautiful, open, lush grass pastures. They didn't really need much from people. They had everything they needed. They had each other. They had an abundance of food. They had plenty of water, and they were they were kind of in a horsey paradise. And by the time that I had that opportunity to to meet them, to connect with them and to start really engaging with them, I had been through a pretty significant level of trauma, um, uh, mostly sexual abuse trauma. And I uh, you know I, I feel like I sought out the horses as an attempt to escape interacting with people, um, and what I really didn't see coming was that they would kind of set me on a course to restoring my ability to trust myself and restoring my ability to form healthy relationships with other people. So, you know, that journey, um, it was, I think, because they weren't necessarily in a stable where it was... um, you know, I'm showing up for a riding lesson and my my pony is just handed to me. And, you know, while well, that's amazing and a really fun friendship to develop, my exposure to it came from a slightly different access point. Um, I would go out to, they weren't wild herds. They were, you know, working ranch horses. But for the most part, they spent their days enjoying themselves uh, in a family grouping in the pasture. And when I went out to try to connect with them, Many times I thought, "Oh, it's going to be like the movies. You know, I'm going to I'm going to carry a bucket of grain or I'm going to have a carrot or I'm going to have something and then they'll get interested. They'll come over. Um, they'll like what I have to offer. They'll fall in love with me and then I'll have my new best friends, right?" And it just did not work like that.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm I'm laughing on the other end because I see that so frequently. With with leaders, where with people who are trying to lead other people, where you're like, okay, well, my thinking is good, my rationale is good, my, you know, my the wages are good, everything I have to offer is so good. Surely, I'll just have this willing flock that will follow me wherever wherever I go. And then you realize that actually, no, that dynamic, way more complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's so true. And so I um. You know, when I, I went out there, they started, you know, whether it was intentional or just a natural thing that animals do, or, you know, I, that's still, for for me to comprehend, I don't understand, but they definitely started schooling me, Um, and when I wanted to show up in a certain way, I really um, was trying, essentially, to seek out their approval. Uh, they moved away from me every time. So I would try to come over and try to connect and they would run off and I would chase after them and they would run off some more. Then I would you know, try creeping up on them and then they would run off. So I tried all these really crazy desperate things to get these beautiful animals to connect with me. And over time, there were some early moments where I went out to be in that posture and I let go of my agenda. And I didn't have any of the answers and I didn't know what to do. And suddenly all the emotions that I was keeping at bay and trying to avoid were, you know, hitting me like Niagara Falls. And I just kind of sat in those moments. And those were the moments in which the entire herd would come over. And I I would just be enveloped in this beautiful exchange of... um, of what it's like to be with each other without any kind of agenda um, and with a bit of repetition I began to figure out oh, okay this is about the language of feeling and when I am disconnected from what I'm feeling I'm trying to change it I'm trying to hide it I'm trying to disguise it when I think I should have the answers when I think I should know um, They're letting me know that that creates a very tense, pressure filled environment that is not comfortable. So, I may not be saying anything out loud and I may not be, you know, I may be trying to present to them in the most beautiful way possible. But we actually all sense the underlying feelings underneath, even if we don't know how to consciously, you know, shape meaning around it. If you come into a room where two people have been fighting and you miss the fight, you know, and you just walk in and suddenly you just feel like, wow, there's a lot of tension in this room. It's really quiet. You know, there's a, there's a feeling you're picking up on. It's not what anybody's saying, but the overall body language, our respiration rate, our um, hormone production, um, how we move, all of it is this incredible tapestry that provides a very rich information on our internal feeling states. And the things that, that, you know, people say, when they come to an Equus coaching session with a horse and they'll say to me, oh my gosh, I just uncovered more awareness about myself and my patterns and relationships with people in the last hour than I have in, you know, five or six years of therapy. How is that possible? And I always laugh and I say, no, isn't it amazing? I feel like that every single day. Um, It's because we're working more with the body and we're working more with the language of feeling. We're not kind of looping around in the mind, shaping different stories about what we think would be a good approach to something. We're able to actually embody what it is like to be vulnerable and to be fully accepted as ourselves and realize that that is our strongest point of leadership.
1: I've heard you say that the in in when you're working with horses and we're going to get into the hows and the how we tap into that soon. But I heard you say that the intention is to become the matriarch or the patriarch of that particular herd of horses or that particular horse. And that got me it got me thinking because the word matriarch or patriarch to me, it it has often negative connotations when you're trying to to parent somebody or when you're trying to be controlling. What's the what's the distinction between between that intention that you hold and what you would say the normal approach is to how we go in and try and influence another human being or a horse?
0: Yeah, so it's a great question. I think often when we think about these things, we think about it from the context of what we already know, and um, which of course is very natural to do. But um, we, we often think about leadership in sort of a pyramid model, where there's one person or one being, whether it be a male or a female, that's going to be the directive of what happens, um, or offer the directives on what happens. And Um, what I've witnessed when I look at nature is that, you know, in an animal like horses, there is a, when they're left to their own devices and they are, um, you know, in wild settings, they will typically form these herd groups. And within those herd groups, there is usually a female that we would consider the matriarch female. And so what does that mean? it means that not always but more often than not she tends to be the one who um offers guidance on the direction of where the herd might go for better grazing um or where the watering holes are uh and she also tends to kind of set the overall boundaries of behavior um from youngsters and you know things, things little foals that are being obstructive or, you know, being a little bit difficult. She'll she tends in above and beyond, um, their, their mothers to, um, add kind of overall like, feedback on, on how the herd operates. And I've found that if we can kind of go within ourselves and access, um, The matriarch tends to be the one who is the most calm. And she tends to be the one who's the most aware of what's happening in the environment. And so the herd naturally, uh, you know, looks to her for input, for information, for guidance, and she kind of steps into that role. But that said, if for a moment she's distracted or she's, you know, meeting or she's uh you know she's injured or something who whatever is needed whomever is best suited to fill that void instantly steps up into that position within the herd, so it's never these rigid roles um and it's not about you know trying to um win your win your armor and win your position um it's really about what's in best service to where we're trying to go you know what's in 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 this case what's what's in the best service of the harmony of the herd and uh, so i tend to look at those characteristics in a matriarch mare and look at the ways that i might learn how to implement that for myself you know what what would enable me to be much more aware and intuitively perceptive for all that's happening in the environment so that I can not only, you know, navigate myself into into what feels safer, but I can also then create an environment that is, you know, has a foundation of a sense of safety for everybody.
1: I read this as part of of the research that we did prior to this. There was this beautiful quote, I think it was from the Washington Post, um, from someone who had witnessed you in action. And it said, it was like watching a mystical woman calming a violent ocean with her eyes. She just continued to watch and make quiet gestures, unconcerned at the waves thundering onto the deck. And I read that and it occurred to me outside of my own internal response to that, which was how, (laughs) how, how to do that on on a daily level, on a professional and a personal level, but the, the other response that I had, so the first was how, and the second one when I imagined reading that to some of the leaders that I know, some of the CEOs that I know, that another response would be, I can't imagine that working in my life, in my situation. You know, my teams, if they're too opinionated, they're too competitive, too fragmented, easily distracted or spooked. So... to <laughs> To start speaking to that, I was trying to think of the best way to start speaking to those two responses. Can we, let's just start at a very practical level. Explain the process of the work you went on to create, because the work you went on to create spread globally at all levels. Um, so just let's talk about the the process of it. What does it look like?
0: I'll share a story with you that I think will help, uh, will help create an understanding I did a corporate group a couple of years ago, and I had a woman who uh, said to me, I, I asked her, I said, okay, you know, it's your opportunity to have a session with a horse, and her her whole team um, of 20 other colleagues were there watching her. And I said, you know, what is it that you feel like you really would like some support with? And she says, I just, I don't know what it is, but I try communicating messages to my team and I feel like nobody hears me. I'm, you know, I, she was, um, you know, kind of in a top management and uh, leadership position. She said, I, you know, I think I outline really clearly what the objectives of the project are. And then, you know, we, we do a follow-up meeting and half of those things weren't done. And, um, I feel incredibly frustrated. I feel like you know, I'm just not making the connection. I said, okay, great. Now let me invite you to go down into this, you know, uh, this arena with the horse and let me just watch you try to form a relationship with that horse. Allow me to just witness for a few minutes and see what happens. So she goes in and uh the horse was uh this you know, beautiful, dappled, gray, gelding, big, gorgeous, you know, flashy horse. And uh, she starts, she kind of looks at him for a few minutes and seems like she's assessing what she might want to do or what she might want to try. And then she begins to kind of move and express herself with her body language, with her hands, and she's trying to encourage the horse to move. So he looks at her and he reads her gestures and he reads the overall feeling. And within a few seconds, he's bolting around the arena. I mean, just flat out high speed, you know? (laughs) And so I let it go for just a second because I wanted to watch to see how was she going to respond? What was she gonna do with this? And she just kept trying harder and harder and harder. And of course the horse kept running faster and faster. So then I called a little timeout and I said, okay, let's just pause for a minute. What are you noticing? And she said, this horse is just not listening to me. All I wanted to do is walk. I just want this horse to walk. Why won't he walk? I'm doing everything possible to tell him to walk. And he's just, he's totally ignoring me. He's just running around. I said, okay, feel familiar. You just said to me, you know, that you feel like your team isn't listening do you notice the sensation? She's like, yes, of course I notice the sensation. Don't patronize me. <laughs> and uh, I said, okay, so let me help you. So I went into the arena with her. I said, listen, it's not what you say. It's not even the particulars of trying to make the exact right gestures. It's how you feel on the inside. So you said you want to see this horse walking calmly. What part of you, if you're 100% honest with yourself, is really walking calmly? And she tried again, and it was a little bit of improvement, but still the horse was running, running, running. And so I said, okay, let's link arms together. All I want you to do is just be a passenger on my arm. You don't have to try to accomplish anything I will initiate the calm walking, and I all I want you to notice is how does it feel? Like what is the actual sensation inside your own body once we accomplish what this thing is that you wanted to see? So I took her in my arm, and within a, a half of a lap of our space, the horses is, is at a very calm, slow walk. And I could feel her whole shoulders relax, her jaw relaxed, her breath slowed down, her belly started to move, you know, her feet felt softer in the way that they were um, stepping on the sand. I said, okay, can you feel this feeling? She said, yeah. But now you do it. You communicate this feeling to the horse. And she had no trouble after that. She was able... To, you know keep that horse on a really beautiful calm walk for as long as she wanted and then we played and I said, okay, now go back to the intensity, the tension, the pressure you were putting on yourself to try to get it right, to make this horse walk calmly, that you um, you know that there's some kind of in, that the deadline that you have to accomplish here in the matter of the minutes of our session. Um, all these added layers of meaning, that you put on top of the experience that create a tremendous amount of internal pressure. She played with kind of noticing the way she tends to treat herself. And as soon as she would slip into that, and I would ask her to like, uh, tell herself a story such as, um, there's only so much time and I've got to get this, I I must make this horse walk right now. Um, and of course the horse would start bolting, you know, just zipping around the pen at a hyperspeed. I said, okay, now can you be brave enough to let go of all of that and drop completely into the feeling you're yearning for? Can you shift the relationship you're having towards yourself to be one that's focused on kindness and on cultivating a feeling state? And the moment she would do that, instantly the horse would start walking. So... It's a while it may seem very strange to people to do some kind of equine, uh, you know, facilitated experiences and things of that nature, Equus coaching that um, we've created. It seems strange initially, but it's really a profound experience to realize when we actually embody a feeling that that is shaping the entire environment. And most of the time, we are either knowingly or unconsciously embodying a feeling that is riddled by shame and a sense of inadequacy and a sense of not doing enough or not being enough or you know, not having enough. And this creates a lot of internal stress and a lot of internal pressure. And people, we, we feel it. We feel it from one another. We never talk about it. And it's become so prevalent that it's almost become normal. Um, But it has a huge impact on whether or not those in our environment feel safe. They don't really do what we say. They respond to how it feels. And when I became aware of that, it it really, uh, it really shifted my ability to, to cultivate more meaningful relationships.
1: Before we go before we go any further into the interplay between two individuals I really wanted to speak to you because when I set up when we set up this interview the thing that was kind of raging through my head was leading a fearful herd. There's there's a lot of people I think who feel like from a leadership from a family from a team perspective it's they're just leading a pack of wild horses. Literally, you know, reacting on a moment-to-moment level—if one bolts, if one spooks, if one has a, a loud or an aggressive need—and then you add in environmental factors that that can create a spooking effect, where everybody suddenly gets very fearful, and you can feel that—you can literally feel that move through a team or a room like electricity when it happens. And there's this electric moment when you can feel it kicking in, and and I'm. I'm assuming it's an assumption that it's the same with horses. What have you What have you learned about what it takes to lead a herd that might be in the throes of fear or in a very unpredictable state?
0: It's such a great question. Um, there's a natural tendency to want to try to fix it. Um, I don't think any of us really enjoy seeing other people in a state of distress or animals in a state of stress. Um, And so certainly there's kind of this knee-jerk reaction to want to be quick to respond, to fix, to, you know, to remedy the situation. And a powerful lesson that I've learned in working with horses, um, especially working with a lot of really troubled and traumatized horses, was that I have to leave them all the room in the world to feel exactly the way they felt. So if, um, you know, if I step into an interaction or a session with a horse and they start to startle, you know, I'm asking for something really playful, but maybe they've had, you know, a past traumatic experience and they equate my request to I'm about to do something harmful to them, you know, um, I have to allow full space for them to respond in any which way they want to. And my only job role is to be completely transparent and 100% myself. So as I go in and I navigate noticing, oh wow, okay, that horse is really wound up and really afraid right now, I'm gonna slow down my breathing. I'm going to notice what's happening in my own body. I'm going to be attentive to any part of me that starts looping into a place of fear. What do I need to feel some sense of calm, some sense of well-being? And what do I want this interaction to feel like for me? Now, initially, taking that perspective felt really outrageous and selfish and unkind and irresponsible and, you know, all the judgments that would pop up. And yet, when I was brave enough to try to let go of control or just the idea that I had control in the first place, uh, what I found was that when I really tended to cultivating a feeling of genuine calm in my own body, within 60 seconds, a horse is standing right beside me completely calm you know and that's that I'm talking about many many different horses all over the world i'm not talking about a single animal that's trained most have never had any kind of training so that because that's incredibly consistent my hunch is and my experience with people is that the parallel is the same we're much more impacted by what's happening with each other's feeling states than we realize and luckily, with some of the neurofeedback that we're doing, and some of the things like heart math that are tracking, um, you know, the our um, the way that our heart rhythms uh, express, we're realizing that actually, when when we're in an interaction with each other, every being naturally uh, desires to be in a place of parasympathetic nervous function. So that's, think of P for peace. Um, It's where we're in a a deep state of relaxation, wherein our bodies are in rest and digest, our immune systems are functioning normally, um, and we feel a genuine sense of well-being and a sense of safety. So every creature on this planet wants to be in that state the majority of the time. When we get into an environment where there's distress or there's a lot of pressure or there's a lot of chaos, or there's a lot of change, that parasympathetic nervous function is the one where we have access to creativity. We have access to internal wisdom. We have access to um, uh, you know, being able to engage in ways that we wouldn't have when we're in sympathetic nervous function, which is that flight or fight space. Most human beings, unfortunately, are in sympathetic nervous function for the majority of their day, meaning that we're in hyper-focus. We're um, often quite worried about uh, our loads of responsibilities. Our, um, you know? Is everybody else going to be okay? What's going to happen? What's going to happen to my parents? How do I... You know, we, we have lots and lots of internal narrative that keep us in a state of sympathetic nervous function or flight or fight for the majority of the day and those feelings of shame and inadequacy that pile on to that. When we are in the presence of someone who is able to drop into parasympathetic nervous function, all beings navigate to that because it is the thing that actually enables us to navigate challenging situations safely. So we, you know, now, luckily, we're starting to come into a time where meditation is becoming, uh, people are re- recognizing the very practical, uh, powerful assets that come from doing med- meditation and our ability to connect with ourselves and each other, um, you know, yoga practices, um, breathing practices, uh, and the things that we're doing to start to become more aware of our overall emotional um information and our emotional intelligence. I think all of these things are speaking to the fact that we're starting to begin to realize that our internal feeling states are pretty powerful. And so my experience is that it really, you know, that it, it it's terrifying to let go of control and think that you should jump in to fix um, what's happening with a team. But I found that when you drop more authentically into what's happening for you, and to a space of being really vulnerable about it, and tending to the internal feeling that you're trying to cultivate in yourself, when you land in it authentically, it's incredibly contagious, and it shifts a room in a matter of minutes.
1: I want to talk about um, about trust and force and control; those three those three words. Um, I find I'm just gonna use an example from my own world. There's I have a tendency to want to try because I, I work in the world of words. And so I have a tendency to try and find the perfect words. You know, if I if I just find the perfect words to make this request, if I find mm-hmm. the perfect words to describe the situation, if I find the perfect words to engage with somebody. And you know, it's a part of the reason why Doing a podcast appeals to me so much because I get to play with questions and I get to play with words. And something else struck me, I think it might have been something that you wrote, it's, you know, when, when you're tasked with the, with the job of coercing a thousand pound animal to do your bidding and you find yourself unable to use physical or verbal persuasion. And again, I could just feel that panic of if I couldn't use words, what would I do? Like I'd be left, I'd feel completely defenseless. And so, if you can't use words to invite, to engage, or to persuade, what are some of the tools you can use? What toolbox are you left with?
0: Yeah, such a great question. Um, when I'm working with a, when I'm working with a wild Mustang, for example, um, if I go about my, uh, interaction where I'm thinking, okay, I've got a job to do. I want to get this horse where it's accepting a halter, where it's accepting a saddle, where I can get a rider on it. And, um, I don't have a lot of time to dilly dally. So I need to just, you know, put the pedal to the metal now and get this done. If I go in to working with a Mustang with that in the back of my mind, what I'm going to get is a really quite dangerous interaction and um, the level of pressure that I put to try to make things good or right or prove myself as a, you know, a horse whisperer or whatever it might be. It creates so much disconnection between the two of us and the time that it actually takes me, like maybe if I'm savvy enough or I know how to control the situation or I choose to rope the horse and take away some of its freedoms, then I can get what I want done Possibly in the time frame that I want it done in. The problem is I now have a relationship that's riddled with problems. I'm riddled with a lack of trust. And if you back up the clock a little bit and we replay the same scenario and I go to an interaction and I put, I frame it with, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's not within my control and i'm really clear on the kind of connection i want with this animal and how i want it to feel and all i'm going to do is track that one thing and let everything else give me feedback and guidance on what's next so when i go in and i really take the time to tend to how do i want this to feel well i want to feel like I can trust this animal, and I really want the animal to feel like it can trust me. So I have to take every step without an idea about where it's going, but a willingness to track that feeling that enables us to cultivate a particular uh, relationship with each other. So some of the time, maybe a Mustang starts kind of pushing my boundary a little bit. And it's giving me some, you know, uh, like trying to come in a little bit close and wants to, you know, bite at my coat or something. Um, And it's important for me to not just say, oh, I'm so happy that you want to come be with me. I'm so excited that you want to come closer. Thank you. It's really important for me to say, thank you for being willing to come closer. And you trying to bite at my jacket does not feel good. I don't That's not the interaction I'm looking for. And to be very clear on how the relationship feels and define my own unique way in that moment of expressing it, it allows for a level of vulnerability and transparency between both of us. I'm not coming in with the you know, um, dictator uh, perspective that I know exactly what this should look like and how we should accomplish it. When I do take the time to cultivate relationships with that in mind, the interaction, you know, the 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 outcome is dramatically different. So we have, you know, typically it takes most trainers several weeks and months to get um a wild Mustang into a very trusting place, um, if they if they get there at all. Um and really this can be done in a couple of hours. You know, it could be. It can be done. The level of trust and connection and transparency and the ability to really feel one another, can be done in a couple of hours. And once a being like that really feels your heart, and you really feel theirs, there's a level of 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 trust. You know you're there for each other. You know you really know. It's nobody's perfect. The Mustang doesn't expect you to be perfect. I don't expect the Mustang to be perfect. And there will be plenty of bumps along the way. But there's a deep level of trust in really knowing each other.
1: I wanna I just I wanna drill down into a couple of into a couple of things that you said just then. One was the the biting of the jacket. And I think that a situation that it's easy to fall into when you're you want someone to trust you and if you can drop into that space and if you can gravitationally come closer and closer together where you're intent on having a trusting relationship. And then inevitably at some stage, either quickly or over a long period of time, that sense of trust becomes a boundary bump. You know, when you you drop down into a level where someone oversteps a line that they didn't know that you had, or they test a line that they did know that you have, or you you know, go headfirst into somebody else's line that you didn't know existed. And it's really tempting in that moment to go, oh, you know, God, it's taken me so long to get into this strength of connection with somebody. I don't want to break it now by going, excuse me, that doesn't feel good. Can you just back off a little bit? And in doing that, well, firstly, how do you do that? How do you, I mean, you sense that it's happened. We all know when it's happened. How do you do that and not break the very thing that you've been working so hard to create? And especially when you do it and someone skittles off, how do you then not go, oh, my goodness, no, come back, come back. I'm sorry. I, d- I didn't mean that. What have you learned about those two things and doing it in the yeah. first place and dealing with the with the outcome of doing it?
0: Yeah. To me, trust is a living Relationship, so it's not something that um, you know. Once we accomplish a certain level uh, with each other, it's just in place forevermore. It's really an active living relationships. Our connections with one another are something that are meant to evolve, to grow, to challenge us, um, to grow ourselves on a much deeper level. Uh in connections with one another is, uh, we all need it. It's deeply nourishing and it's incredibly challenging. And, um, it takes, I think, an internal commitment to place your desire to connect at the center of what you do. So if, um, you know, if I'm again, I'm more focused on getting things done, I'm more, uh, you know, worried about a particular outcome or how something is going to per- be perceived, I'm not as attentive to the relationships of, you know, my team, who I'm working with, how we're working together, how we're getting there, how's the whole thing feeling. And I think in years past, People came from the mindset of, we don't have time to worry about people's feelings. We have to, you know, get the bottom line here. Like this is, uh, you know, we don't have time for all this mushy stuff. And now scientifically, we're starting to see, oh my gosh, uh, actually what's happening on an emotional level for every person I'm working with has a huge impact on innovation, on creativity, on resilience. Um, and on an ability to, you know, that, that, that safe environment to bring rich ideas forward, you know, to be able to play and engage with new, new insights. So it's, it comes back, you asked how, I think you can go into any interaction, feeling a little rattled and go in feeling some, you know, uh, sense of inadequacy and start to try to justify or to prove your perspective or your point and um, while that's a wonderful verbal exercise to explore it doesn't usually create connection what it creates is a feeling of you're not hearing me and the other person fit essentially saying and you're not hearing me you know and then we just kind of sit in our, our perspective sides of feeling frustrated and, and separated from each other. If we can allow ourselves to be a little bit more curious and come to an interaction without needing, like to feel the tension of a disconnect that's happening between me and, a, and team members or me and another individual, and to remain curious enough to figure out what would it take for us to feel a sense of connection to each other again. and you know, what what am I personally needing and what might the other person be needing? If we're willing to place that element of connection at the center of what we're doing, if we find our footing for trust again. If we're more focused on making sure that we're right or proving the outcome, or go you know go back and rehash the facts and the logistics of this happened and that happened. Um, we just kind of stay anchored in our positions, and no one's really taking a step towards building a trusting relationship.
1: So let's go. Let's go back a second to the the setting of the boundary. The I read. I read a beautiful story that you told about somebody who was in the arena with a horse, and she, the horse was playing and nudging and pushing, and and she kept saying no, but she was saying no in a, in a kind of a in a small way, in a polite way, and obviously it was having no impact at all. I want to play with the idea because I've heard it come up a couple of times in different interviews with it, with a fiercely compassionate no. So what does it take for a no to be A, compassionate, you know, hold, hold your connection, but also to be fierce, fierce enough to be heard? What does, that, what does that look like in the arena with a horse before we take it into the world of humans?
0: Sure. Um, with horses, it's all about fully embodying what you feel. So most of the time we have a lot of ideas of what's kind, what's loving, what's respectful to other people, and we limit our expressions. we have a set of you know social rules that we've created. Some of those are really helpful um they're not all bad uh, and but unfortunately, a lot of them create um a suppressed expression, so we don't feel safe to just really state how we're actually feeling when you're holding back on some level, you're being unkind to yourself and you're actually also being unkind and essentially confusing to others because you're sending very mixed messages. So, you know, with a horse, some let's say that a horse approaches you and they start to get a little bit curious. Uh and you start to feel like, oh my gosh, I have this huge thousand pound animal in my face and it's kind of a little bit overwhelming. And while it's also cool, I'm just a little bit scared. you know. Um, If you don't allow yourself to find a way to fully communicate that with your body language and let the animal know that that's how you're feeling. And instead you hold it in and pretend like everything's actually okay, just to keep from rocking the boat. The horse can't feel you. They can't feel the edges of what makes you you. What are your likes? What are your dislikes? What's important to you? What's not important to you? How 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 do you want to interact? And if you're withholding how it feels on your end, they start to push. Not all. Some Some will move away, and because they feel like the tension you're creating is uncomfortable, they'll walk away from you. But other characters will start to nudge and bump you, and push you, and eventually they'll start biting at you. And I don't, you know, when those moments happen, I don't see it as a horse being a naughty horse that's just, uh, you know, um, doing something harmful. Um, I see it as their actually very beautiful attempt to get us to come out of our shell and fully say, this feels good. And this piece over here does not. Thank you. And here's how I want to connect.
1: So, so stay there for a second. What does that look like? Like if I was if I was in a situation and I was gonna call that in or recognize it when it arrived? What does it look like? What does it feel like?
0: So um if we're just sticking with the horse scenario for a moment, if you uh, you know, were to kind of drop into a place where it was fully okay for you to express whatever you feel. You might um, you know, step forward, you might extend a hand, you might um, uh, open up your body language to kind of essentially express and asking that horse to take a step back or to move away from you. And it's amazing how um, when clients do that, if they actually are at a feeling where they've given themselves uh, full permission to just express themselves without holding back, the horses are able to read it beautifully and step back, you know, gratefully, like, oh, okay, great. This is wonderful. There you are. Now now, what do you want to do? Um, or clients who go through the emotion of essentially, you know, trying to like shoo a horse away from you. <laughs> um, and there's no feeling behind it. They're hiding. They're afraid to even make the motion that there's no place there for that person to actually let themselves feel what they feel and make that feeling incredibly important and informative. So, um, you know, you'll get the difference between whether horse really feels your heart and feels you expressing what's true for you, feels you actually showing up, and you may do that through making a noise, or you may do that by taking a step forward, or you may do that by moving or waving your arms, whatever is, comes naturally to you is is your natural expression um the other you know the flip side of that equation is someone you know feeling afraid to make those movements withholding and just trying to go through the right gesture if i make the right gesture this horse is going to leave me alone um and that just yeah that doesn't work
1: i could you could keep going i could keep going on this one but i'm gonna i'm gonna Move into the next because there's there's two or three more really important pieces here that I, I want to make sure that we cover in the time that I have you. The next one is is body language, the importance of body language, and we've talked you know about how fearful I get if you take words out of the equation, and we also talked a little bit off air about the fact that you are you you have a hearing impairment, which means that words are words are my most reliable form of persuasion and and hearing words is your least reliable form which is so interesting given the work that you do and so we're left a lot of the time with you know the energy that we put out there our internal state which then dictates the primary language of that is our bodies is our body language often what have you what have you learned about body language i i noticed that there's in, in what i've read about what you do there's a move away from predatory body language dominant body language and again it's fascinating how often that comes up i we were, we had a un facilitator on the on the podcast a few months ago and when he's negotiating highly intense situations at a country to country level one of his primary focuses that whole time is the dom- like where two bodies are placed next to each other so that the amount of cortisol that's released stays as low as possible so that an agreement can be made rather than two individuals or two teams going into fight or flight immediately. And it felt like there were so many strong parallels between what you do and what he does. So talk to me about body language and what you've learned and some of the key
0: tools there. They say that we really only process about 7% of the words that we're speaking, and that 93% of our communication is nonverbal. And a portion of that is, you know, our tone of voice, our muscle, the way our muscles constrict and impact our tone of voice. Um, Our bodies really don't have the capacity to lie, and so we whatever those internal feeling states are, no matter how good we are at trying to disguise them, it comes out in our small little micro gestures. um, And it comes out in, you know, the shallowness of our breathing. Um, It comes out through muscle tension and jaw tension and hand tension and neck tension. And um, we're very, very good at Reading and perceiving these things from each other, but we're doing it at a subconscious level. So, um, you know, there was a, uh, a quote in, um a while back that was about how we sort of process things at a conscious level versus a subconscious level, and and the conscious level, we're processing, um, you know, about eleven bits of information uh, per second when you go to the subconscious level we're processing 11 million bits of information per second and so it's it's um we know that at a subconscious level we're reading the underlying messages that is you know what we're picking up through scent which is affecting um the over you know the pheromones and being aware of uh, on a subconscious level how much Uh, adrenaline and cortisol is being produced Um, we're uh, we're noticing um, breath rate we're noticing uh, body positioning and body shapes whether they're open whether they're closed or whether we're pulled in or whether we're leaning forward Um, and we don't uh, the body has this incredible way of just expressing itself we we don't get to really control that all that much So on a subconscious level, when we're interacting with each other, we know that the deeper truth is in the body language. So you might come away from a meeting where, you know, you talk with Sally Sue and Sally Sue tells you um, her whole feeling about the status of the project and it sounds really good. And you walk away from that meeting and you think, but something, I feel like there was something she wasn't telling me. I don't know why I feel that way, but I just feel like there was something she wasn't saying. I wonder what's what's going on. So that's our subconscious, you know. That's our ability to process that 11 million bits of information. That you know, the respiration rate, the micro expressions, the the sense, um, the the feeling of what was happening between the two of you. And we put so much awareness and attention on that. I think because we recognize that it's kind of the truth meter. Um, we're not very good at just being, feeling safe enough to be really honest and direct with each other. We've created a very fearful environment around that. And so we often try to disguise things with our words and, um, the, the body just doesn't, doesn't really go down that road. It doesn't really play that game of of deception. It's, it's very much like a horse. Uh, it reflects exactly what's happening in the inner world.
1: You... You have said that leadership energy, well, actually it was really interesting language that you used, leadership energy shape. So you really framed it as leadership energy has a particular shape. It needs to be clear, calm and acutely tuned um, down to the speed and direction of your walk, the opening and closing of your fingers, the tension or relaxation of your abdomen, whether your eyes dart, whether they don't dart, whether we interpret you as passive um, or predatory. Are there, are there two or three, just getting practical, are there are there two or three key things to focus on when you're when you're trying to rewire or wire your own leadership energy to feel that way, to feel clear, calm, and acutely tuned?
0: I think that people can kind of go down the road of, oh, I want to make sure I do this with my eyes or position myself in this way, or like intentionally have open body language, or you know, um, we can start to try to do it from a very uh we're trying to kind of manufacture something. And that to me is never effective. Um, because again, our bodies don't lie. What they're displaying is our feeling states, what's happening in our own inner feeling states and our willingness to be very open and transparent about that to me is one of the strongest characteristics of great leadership. So um, where do you start? Probably the easiest place to start is with your breath. Breath has a huge impact on your entire nervous system. And it can uh you know really help to settle the mind if you can just trace and track your breath. And I try not to give people um while there are a lot of fantastic and really interesting breath exercises out there that I play with all the time, I think in the beginning. It's much better to not try to control anything, but rather that we just turn our attention with curiosity to, huh, how am I breathing right now? And is there any part of it that feels tense, like I'm not taking in enough air, or I feel rushed? Is there any part of my breath that I want to change? And so it's more of a, like, um, that curiosity to come forward and connect, in essence, with the relationship with your own breath. Um, starting there puts you in a place where you're able to fully relax into the body and let it express what it is you're actually feeling in this moment, rather than a checklist of what great leadership body language might look like, um... To me, the greatest expression of leadership is vulnerability and authenticity. So, not that I have all the answers or that I'm gonna, you know, take up charge of uh, uh, total control and responsibility of everything that goes down here. Um, but rather, I want to connect. I want to do this together. I want to create something amazing. I want to create a feeling of trust. Um, I don't necessarily know how to do that but I do know what it feels like when I feel it and I want to find ways for us to work together and create that you know it's a it's um much more human. Slipping into
1: into one of the challenges that I think that a lot of people a lot of people can have is when you're Dealing with the dynamic with either someone who feels they may or may not be, but to, to you it either feels um, domineering or aggressive, um, or somebody that you always, you know, butt heads with, clash with, compete with. How how have you learnt to to deal with those situations? And have you ever have you ever got to a stage where you just think, okay, this one's not going to work. This one. This one doesn't work, we're just, I don't know if that feels like throwing your hands up in the air or if that's a wise leadership decision. You know what, this one is just, either I'm not the right one or this is not the right situation.
0: For sure, I mean, everybody has different characteristics, different talents, different perspectives, different ways of approaching things. And some of those are gonna gel really well together and others are going to challenge each other, but in a way that actually creates something more beneficial. And others just challenge each other. You know, they just um, And, and there's a, it's hard to find a place of connection. I think um, when we're willing to not come from a framework of one thing is right and the other thing is wrong, but to have an appreciation that everybody really does have a unique perspective that they're coming from and a unique bank of experience that they're coming from. We can certainly offer each other that mutual understanding and mutual empathy and respect. And we can also honor, here's what I'm looking to do with this team or here's what I'm looking to grow and create and this doesn't feel like a match to that. This is taking me and or us further away from that than closer to. And so I want to be, you know, I want to be in service to the larger intention here that we're, that we're trying to accomplish. And it's a, you know, it's just a willingness to really own your own experience and be transparent about it without uh, coming from a standpoint that your view is the right view
1: I'm going to one of my final one of my final questions probably will be my final question is around fear you know we started with with this idea of a, of a wild leading a wild herd or getting you know, initiating trust through fear or using our body language our internal state of fear and I just want to go back to that, that internal state of fear, how you, how you manage. I, I've actually heard the parallel drawn be t- before between a frightened mind and a herd of wild horses. You know, often when you're fearful, your mind feels like this herd of wild horses and it's running off in different directions and you're, we literally use the language of I feel thrown, like I, I feel like I was the rider and now I'm thrown. <laughs> What have you learned? What's, what's the, the number one thing you have learned about managing your own internal state of fear? And I would also love if you would share the story of, um, of Maximus because I, think that's a, I just think that that is a beautiful example of some, one of the processes you have been through as a leader in managing your own internal state.
0: So the story of Maximus, Maximus was a very troubled horse um, that I worked with years ago. And it was um, gosh, it was relatively early on in doing a lot of more professional type training for horses that were um that were really troubled. And when I um, you know, his owner had dropped him off and I sort of asked what's the, you know, what's the background with this horse? And he says, oh, you know, this horse, he just, he's just green. He's been out to pasture and, you know, he just needs to be started and we need to get him under saddle. Okay. And so I took him into an arena space to kind of check him out and get a feeling for who Maximus was. And I, the owner was meant to kind of go up onto a viewing deck to watch me for a few minutes and just stay there and make sure Maximus was okay and answer any questions that I remaining questions I had before he left. And um, the lead rope that I was using to kind of guide Maximus into the arena with, as as we got in and closed the door, there was a piece of it that was kind of just trailing down and it brushed, just brushed his leg. And within moments, he exploded. So before I knew what happened, I had, you know, a, a horse rearing up, um and striking out the line and snorting and it was it was a it was an intense moment and uh, I was I had a few angels around my head at that moment and we we missed each other by inches. So it definitely caught my attention and I looked up to see if the owner was there and he was gone. He'd driven off. And with my poor hearing I, I couldn't I didn't know he'd driven off. I I couldn't hear anything. And I thought whoa okay, there's a different story here than this horse has just been out to pasture. Um, something else has gone on. And so as I began to work with the horse, um, I, over a period of couple of sessions, um, I started calling around and watching his the horse's body behavior and then calling a few of the neighbors to find out if they knew of anything. And what I was able to decipher was that the horse had been... Um, These young boys would get drunk and they thought it was a fun activity to go out in their pickup truck into the pastures and rope these horses by their um, heads, by their feet, by their tail, by anything they could get the rope around and drag them behind a vehicle. Uh, And so that's what Maximus had experienced um, to the best of my deductive abilities to get a sense of what went on for him. When I would try to connect with him, he would just run and run and run and run and run, and I couldn't figure out like what what's going on, what is it, what do I, you know, what do I need to do here? This is just, just usually not quite this difficult, and I ended up having a dream where I essentially, you know, in the dream, Maximus was saying to me, "Hey, you keep trying to help me." but what you really need to do is be with yourself, you know, tend to what's happening in yourself. And at the time I was going through some pretty stressful experiences in my relationships with other people just at that particular moment in time. And I thought, oh, okay. So that's a really good point. Let me try that. So the next session I went in to work with Maximus and I'm um, I really again, I just dropped into a lot more of what I was feeling instead of this idea that I was there to show up to fix him. You remember know, I was there to show up some way to help him heal? um Could I just be fully present to the kind of connection I wanted for me, which seemed outrageously selfish at the time, but the moment that I did that, he stopped running. And he came over and he connected and we were able you know, he allowed me to touch him, uh, all four of his legs and, um, you know, to put saddles on him and to be able to work with him. It was incredible. A few sessions later, we um we finished interacting together. I took all of the equipment off of him and I just left it in the middle of the pen. And I I, I like to kind of leave some rest time at the end where there's nothing happening. And. He went over into the round pen and he laid down on the ground and he laid there. And that's it's oh, such a huge, incredible gesture when you have a horse that's very distrusting, have a moment where they're willing to lay down because it's their most vulnerable position. But he not, he laid down kind of facing a little bit away from me. And he, uh, he laid there and he laid there and he laid there. Like 10 minutes have gone by and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is no longer a compliment. This is like, there's something wrong with this horse. He's sick. Maybe I pushed him too hard. What do we do? Like, ah, you know, I started to stress and he picked up his head out of the sand and he kind of looked back at me and the feeling hit me so strongly, you know, this feeling of, hello, are you coming over already? I Come join me. And I just thought, wow, I hope I'm reading this message correctly. Because if he's in some way feeling vulnerable and I'm, t- you know, stepping into that space without full permission from him, I I really wouldn't want to undo this great connection we're building. Um, And I just, I stepped over very carefully and I just watched him let out a huge sigh, you know, just big belly breathe in and breathe out. I knelt down next to his neck and just started to cry. Um, but just the willingness for someone, for another being like that, to open their hearts and to, to form a connection and recognize that a different kind of connection is possible. Um, their, their willingness to, to do that to me is, um, I just take off my hat and bow and you know, try to continue to be a humble student.
1: I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it there I think I think that's just such a a beautiful story and a note on trust and on your own internal state as a leader and the impact that that can have I'm just gonna ask you the the final question that I always ask at the end of at the end of the podcast and that is if I could give you a stage and I know you've had many if I could give you a stage and a and a microphone, and five minutes, and in front of you I could somehow put every single person that you would want to influence. Given all your experiences, given all your knowledge, what's the one thing that you would want them to know?
0: I think it's the primary message that I keep learning from nature and from horses and specifically over and over and over again, and that is that the most important relationship we have is the one that we're tending to within ourselves so the way that we treat ourselves our internal narrative our willingness to be really curious and interested in what we're actually feeling and how intelligent it is the way that it's really taking us towards what we're looking for and not further away um I think if, if there was a way to kind of wave a magic wand and help people to realize that it's not it's not selfish, it's one of the most loving things that we can possibly do to create a new world. is to really tend to the internal loops of self-doubt, of shame, um, and start to cultivate a different relationship with ourselves. One in which we create a lot more permission to be wildly imperfect, to be vulnerable, to um, recognize that we have certain desires and intentions, um, and that we ultimately we don't have control. Um, when we can kind of create a different tapestry for that internal relationship, it allows for so much more meaningful connections um you know more of a nuanced sense of a deep sense of connection with ourselves but also the way that that then creates a ripple effect of a much more meaningful relationship with other people we're going through a time where the uh the discomfort that's being created by a culture of perfectionism and uh the ripple effects of, of the shame that most people are carrying around. It means that most adults are incredibly lonely and feeling very, very disconnected from each other and from ourselves. Um, the simplicity of the message from nature is: you know, can you just be willing to be curious? Can you slow down enough to be curious about what are you wanting? What are you feeling? What are you needing? What actually will help you feel a sense of safety and well-being right now? When I'm willing to answer those questions and really make those a priority, the entire external environment and all the relationships with it go through a really beautiful and transformative change.
1: Thank you. I I literally have nothing nothing to add to that at all Um, it's been a pleasure and a privilege and you know your work I have experienced firsthand I can highly highly recommend it wherever you find it on the planet go and go and have an experience of of what it feels like to see yourself mirrored by a a thousand pounds of pure pure instinct Thank you for your time, Coel.
0: You're so welcome. Thank you, Julie. It was great to connect.
1: Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up on itch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you. But it is jam-packed full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to
0: subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.